It's Essential Pittsburgh. I'm Paul Guggenheimer. In his documentary, The Business of Amateurs, filmmaker and former USC defensive end Bob DeMars chronicles the experience of college athletes and their complicated relationship with the NCAA, particularly the protection or lack of it provided to college athletes who suffer serious injuries, head trauma, and concussions. The film will be shown Wednesday, June 22nd at the Cinemark in the North Hills. And he joins us now from NPR West in Culver City, California. Bob DeMars, welcome to Essential Pittsburgh. Hey, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on. You are a former college football player who encountered a lot of issues that we've been hearing about with the NCAA and that are documented in your film. What prompted you to create this documentary? You know, um, a few years after I started playing, some of the injuries that I had continued to linger, and I began to question whether the long-term cost of these injuries would one day outweigh the benefit of my free education. And, you know, at a school like USC, where now it's like 60 grand a year, um, and I recently actually just tore a ligament in my left knee, which is due to an injury I sustained when I played football. I lost ligaments in both my knees, so some of those chickens are coming home to roost right now. And um, so that got me initially thinking and doing a lot of research. And I read uh, Walter Byers' book, who was the original executive director of the NCAA, uh, called In Sportsmanlike Conduct. And um, he turned heel on the NCAA and called it a plantation system, and that kind of opened up my eyes. But Scott Ross was really the guy that instigated me um, to go out and raise the money and really put both feet in. He was a linebacker next to Junior Seau at USC. And he was a wrecking ball. I mean, he was voted most inspirational by the team. He played in three Rose Bowls, um, started as a freshman. And, um, you know, like Scott, like, like Junior Seau, he started having trouble later on in his life. And I didn't know him. I knew of him. But my roommate was good friends with him at the time, and he asked if his buddy could crash on the couch. Well, his buddy was Scott Ross. And that little while turned into seven months. Uh, he had just lost his job, and his life was spiraling out of control. And from, you know, everything you had known about him, he was becoming a shell of his former self. And I got to know him really well as a friend, and he was diagnosed with dementia at the age of 39. Um, And that was right about when I had started to um, decide to make the film and, you know, go raise the money and make it. How did you seek to humanize these particular issues? You know, we present a lot of different facts throughout the film, and, you know, because there's so many, it's really a big topic. It's it's not just the head injuries, it's the academic rights, it's the financial aspect. And at the end of the day, what resonates with the people that have seen the film are the testimonials. Um, You know, obviously, being a student athlete myself, um, I I ended up having a story and one that played out. Um, I was diagnosed with panic disorder about um, a few months before we started filming. And, um, you know, the name is such a, it's such a misnomer, you know, it sounds like, uh, oh, I'm going to panic in a certain uh, tense situation, but that's not what it is. It's a malfunction of the brain. And for people that get diagnosed late in life, it's, it's actually fairly rare. And, you know, I've now learned that several of my teammates have the same condition. You know, I've had screenings and they've come up to me and they whisper in my ear, I have what you have. And it was difficult to come to terms with my own condition and to be vocal about it because the reality is is student athletes are very prideful in nature. I mean, you know, they take on three-a-days and 80-hour work weeks on top of school, and they do so many things that the average person couldn't imagine that to come to terms with, you know, what most people misassume is your identity, that there's a deficiency there, is a very difficult step to take. And um, I couldn't ask Scott Rosk and other people in the film that offer their testimonials to give their warts and all and for me not to do the same. So at the end of the day, that's really what resonates. It's the student-athlete story. 
And we we hear and see quite a bit about your story in the film. Uh, there there is a scene uh, I understand where you are talking to your wife and and planning for you to donate your brain to science and you know kind of going over end of life issues which you wouldn't expect a, a young couple to be discussing. Right. You know it definitely you know some of these things force you to take a look at these things and, and things that you don't want to look at that you would rather avoid and rather not talk about. And I think it goes for sports fans. You know, you know, people don't want to know where their meat comes from sometimes. And, and a lot of people that have seen the film have been enlightened. And, and, you know, where we come to is the fact that, look, college sports is worth saving. It's something that we love. You know, I love my university. Everybody in the film that we talk to loves their school. But this is what we do with things that we care about and things that we love as we push them to be better. And to, to talk about some of these t- tough issues is really the first step. You know, I believe that all the ambivalence and the mixed emotions that people feel, they're there for a reason. I, I look at it like it's growing pains, okay? Uh, I don't like the fact that I have to talk about donating my brain, but I know that it'll offer some support for guys that are out there going through the same thing and try to educate people on, on what they're getting into. Describe the life of the elite Division One college athlete. You, you've talked a little bit about it, you know, these 80-hour work weeks, the practicing, the traveling, the playing, and, you know, somehow managing to do considerable coursework that if you really apply yourself, as you did as a film student, is, you know, this is hard enough for the average student to accomplish, just, just the workload of a student, let alone the student-athlete. Are these expectations realistic? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I really don't think that they are. You know, the, the term student-athlete, you know, was, was generated by the NCAA so that they could avoid workers' compensation payments for a guy that died playing the sport named uh, Ray Dennison in 1957. Um, but I, I really feel like we're athlete students. You know, we didn't get a scholarship to go to school. We got a scholarship to play our sport. And that sport, unfortunately, comes first. Um, and they use the student-athlete label to say that this is really what it's about, that it's about education. The reality is, is I'm an anomaly. I was in the business school. I was in the film school. I was in the top 10% of my class when I came in to USC. I was a business scholar. Um, but most of these guys actually aren't. You know, when you come from a lower socioeconomic background, um, there's certain issues that come with that. You know, these guys don't have the same access to programs over the summer. And so by the time they get you know, to be seniors in high school, they could be one to two grade levels behind. And in some cases for athletes, because sometimes they just push them forward, some of these guys can't even read, okay? Now, the universities know that. The universities know the level of academics that these guys currently have. But the problem is this. If they go out and they perform and they achieve, you know, amazing things on the court and on the field, they'll find a way to keep them eligible, okay, as we've seen at North Carolina where they created a system for fake classes, okay, to keep all of these guys eligible. But we have another guy in the film who got injured, and the school ignored his injury, and then they knew he had learning disabilities. Um, they then used his shortcomings and his GPA as the excuse to get rid of him and to not continue his scholarship. And I think that's deplorable because universities know the level that these kids have, and, and th- there's no remedial soft step up for these guys, okay? So, you know, imagine that you're writing a paper on Frederick Douglass, but you don't even have the historical context for who Frederick Douglass is. Um, or you're listening to a lecture in class and you don't know the historical context. A lot of these guys are so far behind, and then you give them 40 to 80 hours a week of their um, sport on top of it, and how do you really overcome that? The average student probably would have a problem with that, and that's who you're competing with, the average student in all your class. Um, So some of these guys find a way to maintain eligibility 
ability, and some of these guys cheat. Some of the schools help them to cheat, and that's the reality of the system. It's Essential Pittsburgh. I'm Paul Guggenheimer. We're talking with former USC defensive end Bob DeMars. He has made a documentary called The Business of Amateurs. It'll be showing on Wednesday, June 22nd at the Cinemark in the North Hills. Right now, let's listen to a clip from the film that addresses this issue of exploitation. The NCAA Constitution says something along the lines of the NCAA exists to protect athletes from commercial exploitation. But what the NCAA does is commercially exploit them. And so what they really mean is protect others from exploiting the talent that we're commercially exploiting. And that was a clip from the documentary The Business of Amateurs made by our guest, former USC defensive end Bob DeMars. And Bob, in the film, the NCAA is accused of commercially exploiting its athletes. How does that manifest itself for players? Well, you know, the student-athlete is really the only walk of life where you don't receive your value. You know, in any other walk of life, if you were uh, on a music scholarship and you signed a music deal, you could go do that. Um, but as the case, there's a wrestler from Minnesota. He, he put up a song on iTunes under his own name, and he lost his scholarship for that. And um, that's because they feel that, you know, they want to prevent people from commercializing their fame and their name as an athlete. But as we saw with Ed O'Bannon at UCLA, you know, he sued the whole system and won. Um, and that case is still ongoing with appeals and things. But he won because they, they used his name after he graduated. You know, this is 10 years after he's done playing, and they put him in, in a video game. And, uh, you know, how rude is that? They didn't even ask him for permission. And um, so this is the only walk of life where you don't have value. You know, capitalism is a very American concept, but somehow the NCAA has, has created this fairy tale um, where somehow this is an impure element. So while we don't really tackle, like, how would we pay athletes, I do think that if athletes were to actually make money from their own value, um, that, you know, it would balance out the system a little bit. And a lot of people like to argue, well, won't the quarterback make more than the offensive line or the football team make more than women's basketball? Well, yeah, the men's basketball coach makes 10 times what the women's basketball coach makes. But the opportunity will be there. And by preventing everybody from making money from their likeness, they're preventing the, the female athletes as well. So I, I do think that everybody should get their value in whatever walk of life it is. And athletes, student athletes, that doesn't, it doesn't work that way. While making this film, who were some of the people that you interviewed that really surprised you or said something shocking that you didn't expect? Um, you know, we, we had some tough interviews. Uh, we, we interviewed Amy Perryman, whose, whose husband died of ALS, uh, a motor neuron disease, um, related to what they later found out was CTE. And um, it was the first time she talked about it. And, you know, we were sitting in her living room where, you know, in the exact spot where he, he chose to take himself off life support. And that was probably, I think, one of the tougher interviews to get through. Um, you know, this is my second documentary I've been involved in. And the last one was really a bio uh, documentary. And, and this one, you know, you, you, what you don't account for when you're making a film like this is, is that you basically become a journalist. And there's this song and dance that exists in the interview. Um, Cal Hardrick, a basketball player from Oklahoma, you know, I tried to give him a warm-up question. Um, you know, did you grow up playing your sport? And then right off the bat, he broke into tears. And, you know, he had things that he wanted to get off his chest right off the bat. And so there's this interesting, I'd say overall, there's this interesting song and dance that takes place. And, um, you know, I'd say the, the one that surprised me the most was Scott Ross, really, because I'd known him for a long time. And when we interviewed him that day, it was interesting because it was almost like uh, – I don't know, the higher powers, God, whatever you want to call it, fate, they gave him his brain back for one day. 
and he was so clear and he was speaking in sound bites and and normally scott's not like that you know i would get calls late at night at two in the morning and uh he would be suicidal and he would say you know if the handle on this bottle was a gun i'd pull the trigger and um you know i'd be up until 5 30 in the morning when my wife would leave for work trying to talk him off the ledge and um when we interviewed scott that day he was just so lucid and it was it was interesting and, and for five hours he was just on and when we brought him back to his hotel room he could barely walk um he was completely spent he'd used every energy and everything that he had and his brain was no longer really functioning anymore and he had he was basically passing out you would have thought that he had drank an alcohol or something but he had we'd been with him the whole time um so that was probably the interview that surprised me the most that i knew was going to be tough to get through it but um you know having scott show up that day um you know i won't say what happened to scott because you know what happened in the film but um we we did experience a lot of difficulties um in the, in the making of this film and things that we didn't account for when we started um and his story is is you know i think the most important thread in the film and in the film you have college administrators describing the lengths they've taken to protect the brand quote unquote created by the NCAA. During your research and interviews, how widespread have you found this to be? You know, the, the, the reality is, is we couldn't get anybody from the NCAA to talk to us. Um, you know, we really couldn't get any coaches because at the end of the day, you know, this is interfering with their livelihood. Okay, what coach is going to come up and say, I should have a smaller salary so that these guys um, could have health benefits. Uh, there is a coach named John Shoup at Purdue who's got really who got fired because his wife was trying to get a screening of this film at the school. Um, he's a crusader for student athlete rights, and so there's very few people like that that are willing to stand up. You know, him and his wife now say that the money they took in college football was hush money, and uh, I find that really interesting and fascinating because the reality is the NCAA was founded um, to prevent commercial exploitation, but was really founded. For the, to benefit the health and the welfare of the athlete. In 1906, there was 20 deaths a year in college football. So it was really founded to protect the health of the athlete. But in a recent lawsuit, Derek Shealy, um, a player from Frostburg State, uh, who died on the field after his coach sent him back in after he complained of a headache, and he, he died. Um, in, in a lawsuit from that family, the NCAA responded and said, the founding purpose of the NCAA was to protect the health and the welfare of the athlete, but now that is no longer our responsibility. That's the university's responsibility. And they've now said the same thing about education in regard to what happened to at North Carolina. So I think it's fascinating that the two principles that they were founded on, they've now turned a blind eye on. And they now are about protecting their brand um, and policing these institutions so that players don't take money so that they can protect their cash cow. Because the NCAA is a consortium of the universities, okay? It's the collective will of the universities. And, you know, we've seen a 300% increase in marketing spending um, in the last decade. You know, UCLA just signed a $280 million deal with Under Armour. Now, don't you think that they could easily carve out some of that money to protect all of their student-athletes at the school? I think it'd be the smart thing to do. But unfortunately, that money is probably earmarked for bigger salaries and stadiums and facilities. When it comes to collision and blows to the head sustained by college football players, how should they be monitored? Is there something more that the NCAA could and should be doing in this regard? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really simple things that they should be doing. Uh, I think that there should be somebody uh, that's looking after the student-athlete's mental health. You know, only 6% 
of student athletes of uh, Division One programs actually have somebody that's there um, to work with the student athlete. And you know, seventeen percent of athletes suffer from depression. Um, you know, I found out all these statistics from Balanced Position. They're actually the one that's hosting the screening. They're a nonprofit that's dedicated to student athlete mental health. And so there's a lot of solu- simple solutions that are there. I think one of the easiest solutions is to minimize contact. Okay, the, the Ivy League system just set a rule to have, you know, one day of hitting a week in practice. That's not a rule in any other conference because right now the conferences have all the power. And I'm hoping that this film will help shift perspective because that's a no-cost solution. We'd have less injuries. Um, it's not just the concussions. It's really the sub-concussions. It's the repetitive blows. The average player has anywhere from 900 to 1,500 sub-concussions per player for a season. Okay? So if we were to you know, cut back on some of these uh, full-contact practices, we would significantly minimize the long-term impact and the repercussions on the mental health of these student-athletes. That's a simple solution right there. Another solution is to have um, independent medical staff on the sidelines. You know, just a year and a half ago, um, you, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, the Michigan quarterback got hit in the chin and was basically unconscious and was, his legs were going out from underneath him. They let them in on that play, okay? And he could have been hit again and gotten a second concussion and died on the field, okay? So there's nobody that's independently looking out for the student-athlete. Because if you ask a guy, are you hurt or are you injured, are you ready to go? You know, these athletes don't want to let their teammates down. They never want to show weakness. They're always going to say, I'm ready to go. It's built into them. It's who they are. They need somebody that isn't hired by the coach, that isn't attached to the coach, that is completely independent, that will pull them out when the time calls for it. Um, And there's a lot of new technology that they're learning with um, helmets that they might be able to put sensors in there so that they can learn, you know, when a guy's close to becoming concussed. Uh, and, And there's a lot of new technology out there that I think is worth looking into. But a lot of schools aren't doing that because I think if their lawyers are telling them, um, you know, if you take a step in this direction, then you're admitting, um, you know, long-term liability, that that this game isn't safe, that there are head injuries. And the reality is you can't completely take your head out of the game, okay? There's no way that you're ever going to make it be completely safe, but you can make it safer. And the fact that, you know, the high school level, the Pop Warner level has responded to what the NFL has done because the NFL is a players association and they've been able to fight for only 14 contact days during the season. Okay, that doesn't exist at the NCAA. So it's up to your coach every day to how much you get bashed in the head. It's Essential Pittsburgh. I'm Paul Guggenheimer, and my guest is former USC defensive end Bob DeMars, who has made a documentary called The Business of Amateurs, which is showing in Pittsburgh. We'll give you the details on that in a moment. But, uh, Bob, I wanted to mention that your USC playing career was made possible by a coach that – a lot of people are very familiar with Pete Carroll, who is now in the NFL, the coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And he, apparently he wasn't willing to speak to you for this documentary, but he is doing something that's kind of interesting and innovative when it comes to teaching players other ways to tackle without using their head that can perhaps protect them and as well as their health in future years. Absolutely. You know, I mean, even though Pete wasn't in the film, you know, I wanted him to be in the film. And uh, look, he had just won the Super Bowl when I had asked him and he was a busy guy. So I I understand. Um, But he is one of the coaches that I know does care about his players. And, uh, you know, he's gone out of his way to um, teach new tackling systems that are now being used at the Pop Warner and the high school level to try to take the head out of the tackling. Um, Now, the reality is, is like I said before, you're never going to get the head completely out of the game. You know, the linemen are still going to be firing off the ball at each other every play. 
Um, so I think what he's doing is absolutely helpful. And I think, it, you know, it all starts with education. Um, you know, educating the fans, the players, the families, um, what the risks are so that they can decide for themselves if, if this is a sport that they want to play. And then ultimately making the game as safe as possible. And, and any uh, institution that's not doing that right now, it's a shame because 20 years from now, we're going to have guys that have mental health problems. And you won't be able to look back and say, we didn't know. Okay. Now, there's, there's all sorts of research that shows that schools have known for a really long time, as early as, you know, the early 1900s, about some of these issues. Um, but since it's been public knowledge in the last few years, everybody knows there's no excuse and for, for any of these schools to not do something like this. So I'm actually, I'm working on some things right now that are going to coincide with the film's release um, nationally in August to try to put some pressure on, on these conferences uh, to minimize the impact. Let's start with that. Let's start by cutting down on these on the hitting in practice. Let's start there, and let's see if we can take more steps and move in the right direction um, in favor of student-athletes and looking out for their well-being. I'm curious as to whether you received any blowback from the NCAA. Uh, you know, they haven't responded to me. Uh, I really did try to be as objective as possible. You know, we don't just go around shaming schools in the film. We actually show some bright spots of schools doing the right thing as well. Uh, I wanted this film to be as objective as possible in the process. And we did try to get them. And, um, you know, whether or not they're going to, you know, be mad at me for what I'm doing, I'm just speaking the truth. And I have that right. And, you know, this is a film for student-athletes, by student-athletes, and for the fans. And, you know, not only was I a student-athlete at USC, but uh, the composer um, of the film was a pitcher out of Princeton. Uh, all of the animation in the film was done by a safety out of Oregon State. We had original songs written for the opening credits and the closing credits, both by student-athletes. Um, and uh, 17 out of the 20 interviews in the film are former student-athletes, including our top brain doctor, who was a pitcher at Berkeley. So we've integrated as much of this about student-athletes and the student-athlete experience as much as possible uh, to make it come from a very credible place. Um, so, you know, they can say all they want. All, all I'm doing is telling the truth and, and trying to change the system for the better, and it's something that they should have been doing a long time ago. The documentary is called The Business of Amateurs, and it was made by USC defensive end and film school graduate Bob DeMars. He is going to be debuting his film in the Pittsburgh area on June 22nd. That's Wednesday, June 22nd at the Cinemark in the North Hills. Bob DeMars, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for this very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much. I really appreciate um, giving the stage for me. I appreciate it. Our pleasure. More Essential Pittsburgh coming up. This is 90.5 WESA.